the world of Islam, culture, religion, and politics. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Amin Tais. In the last episode, we saw how by the late 700s, the legal discussions within the Muslim communities had become more sophisticated. We saw that in this time period, a strong debate was occurring between Ahl al-Ra'i, the people of considered opinion, and Ahl al-Hadith, the people of Hadith or individual reports that are attributed to Muhammad. You might remember that by this time, the notion of Sunnah of Muhammad, the normative practice of Muhammad, had become very important in Muslim discussions. The question, though, is... What is the content of the Sunnah? How do we know the Sunnah? And how do we practice the Sunnah? For Ahl al-Ra'i, the Sunnah is embedded in the process of Ra'i, or considered opinion, which itself stems originally from the Sunnah and stays within the spirit of the Sunnah, since jurists use their reasoning to reach legal opinions within the general frame of the Qur'an and Sunnah. A name to retain among the Ahl al-Ra'i is a man from Kufa in Iraq by the name of Abu Hanifa, who died in 767. I must note here that for the modern historian, it is vital to maintain the difference between Abu Hanifa's own views and commitments and between what his students and his followers would develop over the decades in changing circumstances and which would become the basis for the Hanafi Madhab or the Hanafi School of Law. In Medina, another important scholar by the name of Malik ibn Anas, who died in 795, would argue that the Sunnah is best known through the custom or practice of the people of Medina, Amal Ahl al-Medina, because that's where the Prophet lived and his community was established. Therefore, the practices and customs that were inherited by the following generations of Medinese people is the best representative of the Sunnah. Another view comes from a fast-growing movement in pietistic circles that was concerned with collecting individual reports about specific actions of the Prophet its proponents argued that the best way to know the Sunnah is through 
these reports or hadiths. Here again, it's important to remember that all these discussions are not happening in a vacuum. Rather, we could see that many of the jurists of Ahl al-Ra'i were closer to imperial power, particularly after the rise of the Abbasids. You might remember from this podcast's episodes on early theological debate that the early Abbasid caliphs had supported the rationalist theologians and that an opposition grew around the pietistic circles of leading Ahl al-Hadith scholars. Similar dynamics are at play here. But the intellectual and religious dimensions are, of course, also very important. And like in theology, we could generally see in legal circles a clash between rationalists or proponents of human reason to be used on a larger scale, on one hand, and the traditionalists or the proponents of closer adherence to inherited sources, including and perhaps chiefly the Hadith. We must remember that the lack of early sources puts us in a position of speculating about a number of things. But what's clear is that there was an intense debate and that the Hadith movement was successful in making its mark on the scene. You might recall that in the theological domain, a compromise of sort was initiated between the rationalists and traditionalists, and that Abu al-Hasan al-Ash'ari, who died in 935, was among the central figures in shaping this compromise, a compromise that was certainly tilted towards the traditionalist camp. Almost a century before al-Ash'ari, a compromise has already been initiated in the domain of law between Ahl al-Ra'i and Ahl al-Hadith. A central figure in this compromise, here again tilted toward the traditionalist camp, was a brilliant man by the name of Muhammad bin Idris al-Shafi'i, who dies in 820. Shafi'i was a student of Malik, and also a student of one of the main students of Abu Hanifa, an important jurist named Ashibani, who died in 805. Ashafi'i was also highly influenced by the Hadith movement. In his writings, Ashafi'i argued against those who rejected Hadith as a vehicle for Sunnah. The rejectors of Hadith seemed to doubt the reliability of reports narrated by individuals that claim these reports to be coming directly from Muhammad. Shafi'i spent much energy and time responding to the doubts raised by his opponents. His effort 
would culminate in pushing further a process that was already in motion and that sought to establish the reliability of hadith reports. In the generation after al-Shafi'i, we see a bigger effort to distinguish between reliable and unreliable hadith reports. This was done through investigating the reliability of the narrators, the transmitters present in the chain of transmission going back to Muhammad. A literature called Ilm al-Rijal or At-Tabaqat would arise from the collection of biographical data on the transmitters of hadith. The idea was that reliable individuals would relate reliable hadiths. We will discuss in more depth uh, this issue when we discuss hadith in an upcoming episode. For now, we must briefly discuss the attempted compromise initiated by a Shafi'i. A Shafi'i would create the basis of an important field within Islam. This is Usul al-Fiqh, the sources or principles of jurisprudence. At the risk of oversimplification, we could say that a Shafi'i argued that for a legal ruling to be religiously acceptable, it must be derived from one of four sources. These sources are, in order of importance, number one, the Quran, number two, the Sunnah, through the vehicle of the Hadith. Although, it is more accurate to see the Qur'an and the Sunnah at the same level theoretically because al-Shafi'i argued that the Sunnah is also a form of revelation, wahi, and that the Sunnah explained and can even abrogate Qur'anic pronouncements. So, we could say that we have 1a, is the Quran and 1b is the Sunnah through the Hadith. Number three is Ijma or consensus, which means the consensus of the Muslim community. Although this notion of consensus came restricted to Muslim scholars. And number four is Qiyas, a term that can be translated as analogical reasoning but in the hands of later jurists would take different forms. The Qiyas seeks to tie the legal reasoning directly to the text and is thus a restriction on the more free-flowing reasoning of Ahl Ra'i. Meaning that the jurist needs to find relevant texts in the Quran and in the Hadith and use some sort of analogy in order to come up with rulings on issues that are not directly dealt with in the text. A Shafi'i's frame came to dominate legal circles. Part of the success of this frame stems from its attempt at compromise, but as important is its usefulness in developing a more unified legal structure for a Muslim community 
that is scattered in many corners of a large empire. Whereas before Ash-Shafi'i's intervention, the more independent legal schools led to the development of more localized laws that are threatening to the unity of the community and the empire. So the frame of Ash-Shafi'i opened the door to a more unified system. Ash-Shafi'i's usul al-fiqh would be further developed by Muslim jurists over the decades and the centuries. But the basic frame of Quran, Hadith, Ijma' and Qiyas would impose itself on all legal circles. So that the students of legal scholars who had lived before the work of a Shafi'i had to base their legal circles and eventually their legal schools on the frame proposed by a Shafi'i and they also had to integrate the legal rulings developed by the early scholars within the new frame. Some secondary sources of law would be maintained by different circles, and they would have more or less importance depending on the historical and geographical context. This is all I have for you today. I leave you in peace. Assalamu alaikum.